Locked on NBA with Ben Golliver from the bubble. I'm David Locke. Thanks for tuning in. Wow. What a day. And honestly, we're recording this at 1139 at night Easter. We've kind of pushed it as late as we can. Things may have changed by the time you listen to it, but here's what we're going to do on the show. We're going to talk about kind of the events of the night as we sit here at 1139 at night, and then we're going to walk with Ben through the day. Ben was one of three media members that was actually in the gym when Milwaukee didn't take the floor. So that part of the show will maintain itself as completely relevant to any time, even if things have changed by the time you listen to this. So this should be a pretty incredible insight. Ben Golliver, Washington Post. Uh, joins us. So Ben at 11:39 at night right now. It's let's take play what has happened in Orlando over the last few hours. Yeah, well for sure the the biggest takeaway is the Milwaukee Bucks did not take the court as scheduled for their 4 p.m. game against Orlando. Um, that led to basically the postponement of that game, the postponement of two other games that were scheduled for Wednesday. Um, once that took place, kind of dominoes started falling a- across all sports. I mean, you saw soccer, you saw the WNBA, you saw some baseball games all get postponed. Uh, you know, tennis star Naomi Osaka uh, pulled out of a tournament. And so, uh, you know, by kind of that first domino going, the Bucks deciding not to take the court, we're right back sort of where we were almost before the bubble, where there's this question about, you know, what is going to happen here in the short term with professional sports, but specifically with the NBA. Now, the Players Association um, met uh, in, in, for, at parts uh, with coaches um, here at a ballroom, um, you know, on the campus uh, of Disney World to kind of hash things out, to discuss things. The Bucks explained sort of their decision-making process. Um, you know, some other teams weighed in, some other loud, you know, powerful voices, LeBron James, Doc Rivers um, weighed in as well. And, you know, as we know, as we're talking in this particular moment, um, there was no resolution. There was no, you know, group decision that we're going to go ahead and play, uh, you know, games, which would be scheduled to continue tomorrow. We do know the NBA's board of governors has an emergency meeting scheduled for 11 AM um, in the morning. We can imagine there will be talks back and forth between the players association leaders, um, teams, you know, superstar level players and, and the league's owners to try to put this thing back together. But as far as we can tell right now, it does seem like uh, this postseason is at least on pause for the foreseeable future. What do you think the players want? It's very difficult to tell. I'm not sure there's one unified um, sense of demands to give you an idea for how quickly this unfolded. The Milwaukee Bucks players showed up at the arena today and were staying in that locker room for their conversation for more than three hours while wearing their jerseys, their sneakers and their typical warm-up uh, outfits. So it seems to us, you know, from the outside appearances that they went to the arena with the intention to play and then within the, you know, the last couple of hours before the tip-off, um, you know, something changed. They changed their mind. I mean, exactly what uh, the Bucks are asking for is they want action in Wisconsin from legislators there, um, you know, with regard to the, uh, you know, the Jacob Blake case. They want to see some arrests made of the police officers. They want to see justice for his family. And then they also want to see some, you know, steps being taken by the local government uh, to address the issues of police brutality. You know, stepping back, we've heard from LeBron James and Doc Rivers this week asking for, uh, you know, reform of police training efforts. Uh, You know, potentially, uh, you know, also uh, Doc Rivers was hinting at the idea that the police unions um, essentially need to be, uh, you know, stripped down in terms of their power. 
Uh, but in general, I think that what they really want is to stop feeling so afraid to be black in America. And I think that's a, a completely understandable you know, feeling and sensation, particularly during this summer, and particularly because these players and coaches are isolated from their family members and they're living down here in the bubble. Um, the question is, if you're in a negotiation with the NBA owners, um, is that something that you can ask them to solve? Is that something that they can fix in the short term? Or are these sort of deep-rooted feelings that uh, you know, can't be negotiated away, right? I think those are some of the, the biggest questions that the NBA has to face right now. So if the Bucks came to the arena, assuming they were going to play, do we know what happened in that locker room? George Hill, I see, was the one who gave the Milwaukee player statement, which I thought was, to their credit, very well done. I've been around George Hill when he's with a team. He's very vocal. He's quite powerful in a locker room. Do we know what happened with the Bucks and how this came about? Not precisely, but it, so George Hill and Sterling Brown both read from the statement. Now, obviously, Sterling Brown uh, has his own personal relationship with Milwaukee police brutality. I mean, it's been an ongoing situation there. So this issue is near and dear to him. And, and we should also mention the Bucks organization over the last few years. You know, also a player like John Henson had kind of called out some racial profiling in the city of Milwaukee. So there has been some pent up tension and baggage between that organization, that city, the local government. And I think that, uh, you know, that is probably contributing to this decision as well. Uh, but, you know, George Hill was the first player to raise the issue actually this week, all the way back on Monday, um, following the, the shooting, he, he raised the point of, you know, why are we even here? You know, this is sort of what we were talking about as players. You'll remember a month or two ago, you know, Kyrie Irving and a group of players were kind of questioning whether, you know, coming to the bubble would be a distraction from some of the social just, justice protests. And I think George Hill was kind of bringing that idea back into the mainstream um, you know, when LeBron was first asked about that, he didn't comment about George Hill's, uh, you know, statement specifically. Doc Rivers actually told me pretty forcefully on Tuesday night that he thought it was the best interest of the players to go ahead and play to kind of show their excellence to the American public and to not let the, you know, the police officers in that case kind of rob the dream uh, from the players. Uh, but clearly something changed on Wednesday, you know, at least within that locker room where they felt like they weren't able to take the court. I'd also say there's been members of the Toronto Raptors um, and Boston Celtics who have felt, you know, pretty strongly about this idea of, you know, potentially, you know, sitting out a game, striking, boycotting, whatever you want to call it. And they had been, uh, you know, potentially targeting a game on Thursday to do that. So, you know, it just wound up being a situation where Milwaukee, uh, the team that's closest to that shooting um, that took place earlier this week, wound up being the team to go first. What is the feeling, or can you get a feeling from the players on whether they think they're being heard in the bubble? I got the vibe today that they don't feel they're being heard, and I would say from the outside, I thought LeBron and Chris Paul were fabulous in their postgame interviews the other day. Doc Rivers was remarkable yesterday, and I felt as though they're being heard, that they've done a masterful job of having the issues of social justice stay on the forefront while they're playing. Do you have any feeling whether they believe that or not? You know, I'm, I'm not sure they care as much about that as the fact that they're just really deep into this feeling of hopelessness and fear. You know, that's the, the, the message that we hear kind of over and over again. Here's another shooting. Here's another shooting. No matter what they're saying, no matter how passionately and loudly they're saying it, no matter what T-shirt they're wearing or the, the words on the court, they just, you know, see that video and they go right back to where, how they felt when they saw the George Floyd video. And it just I think it was a real collective gut punch to a lot of people here in the bubble. And I do think it's made worse by the idea that these players are away from their families. You know, they can't get a hug from their wife or their kids. 
uh, to kind of, you know, grieve this thing together. They can't go out and protest like Jalen Brown wanted to because, um, you know, they're stuck on this restricted campus and they've got obligations in terms of practices and shoot-arounds and games. And I, I think that adds to it. I 100% agree with you. I think that coming to the bubble has really helped them get their message out um, and, you know, look at what happened with this statement, uh, you know, with the, the shutdown or the, the boycott. I mean, that's front page news. Every single newspaper in the country, it certainly is for the Washington Post tomorrow. I um, mean, it's going to be leading, uh, you know, television programs all over the place. You know, you've got uh, the Republican National Convention going on right now. I mean, I think certainly there was more attention, you know, to the NBA in a lot of circles than was paid to that, you know, kind of head to head tonight. And so I do think that that. Um, it undercuts the idea a little bit that they're being a distraction to these protests. I think in a lot of ways, these guys are actually some of the very loudest and most important leading voices on these issues in the country right now. The NBA players are, and you can even see just the reach they have across other sports when, um, you know, baseball players and, and soccer players and, and a tennis star are all stepping up and, and uh, you know, kind of falling in line right behind them, you know, you know, completely signing up for the cause. So, um, you know, I'm with you. I, I think that's a right read. I, and I don't know if they, are satisfied with how they're being heard. I could understand completely why they wouldn't be, but I think someone from the outside looking in would say, you know, you guys are making a difference. You know, you're definitely getting your voices out. People are hearing you every single night. And the biggest, most popular stories, most read stories I've been writing have all been on the social justice stuff, whether it's LeBron, Doc Rivers, Michelle Roberts. I mean, that stuff has, uh, has certainly been more consumed even than the basketball stories. Doc Rivers' comments were amazing. Uh, if you did not hear them, we, I will put them on the end of this podcast because I think they're that important. It's interesting. Every single team seems to have put out a statement. Miami's maybe the most powerful. The Heat sent out a statement tonight. Enough. We have all witnessed the disparity in how the police treat unarmed black men and women versus armed white men. This unequal treatment of black people at the hands of police has to stop now. We stand firmly with the NBA players and support their decision to protest. That... The Miami Heat, that is a, that is, the Lakers have a statement, the Jazz have a statement, the Knicks have their usual sort of statement, like that is a, that, that is coming strong right there by Miami. It really is, and you, you like to see that because again, it's a change of where this conversation would be. I imagine, go back two years ago, if you had heard that NBA players were quote unquote boycotting or striking, what would the general, um, you know, viewership or, or audience have responded to that. I think you would have heard a lot of spoiled millionaires. What are they doing? You know, they play a child's game for fun. This is ridiculous. I don't get to just strike or boycott at my office. If I did, I'd be fired. I think that would have been more likely to be the response. And I think that they, you know, just judging from kind of the social media reaction and everything else, I think it was a much more positive response, a much more empathetic and supportive response. Um, like you're mentioning from the organizations and from the league itself. So I think that even that represents some level of progress here in the discourse from maybe where we were a couple of years ago or even where we were a few months ago uh, to where we are now. But I think the key missing ingredient here is, you know, I think a lot of people would agree with the Miami Heat sentiment. But unfortunately, when you're talking about systemic racism, these kinds of incidents, they just can't stop now. I mean, it would be great if they would. Everybody wants that. But it's just not such a simple problem, right? These are deeply ingrained within American society. And so that's where the frustration and the hopelessness, uh, you know, comes in. Uh, you know, even here, LeBron, you know, basically just kind of speculating like, well, when's the next one going to be, you know, that kind of a that kind of a mentality. And it's completely understandable. Uh, you know, I think the phrase he used was, you know, black people feel like we're being hunted in America. And 
that just doesn't go away uh, because of a statement. You know, there's, there's no statement powerful enough out there that can make that, uh, you know, make those feelings just disappear. And that's what the players are grappling with right now. He's Ben Golliver. He's at the Washington Post. He's in the bubble talking about, we're going to talk about the day. I want to share two things with Ben. One, I want the text message that started my day that let me know something was going on differently. And then I want to actually have two white guys talking to each other in an honest moment. Two, two, I think, uh, intellectual, well-read white guys talking to each other in a, in a real moment here in, in, about this in, in just one, one second. Today's show is brought to you by rockauto.com. It's a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts for hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even carpet. Whether it's a classic or a daily driver, whether you're a do-it-yourself or a professional, Rock Auto has it all for you. Same reliably low prices, whether you're a professional or you're a do-it-yourselfer, and an endless catalog to navigate and find the brands that you want that are there for you, for your vehicle, the specifications, and the prices you prefer. That's why rockauto.com has been doing this for 20 years to bring you the best there is. Go to rockauto.com right now and see the parts available for your car or truck. Right locked on in their How Did You Hear About Us box so that you know we that Locked On sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. rockauto.com and make sure you put Locked On in the How Did You Hear About Us section. W- one of the things that I, I, in these conversations I've had with a lot of my friends, uh, many of which are African-American, I, I, did, I told them that I, instead of being supportive and passive, that I would be active and brave. So I think part of being brave is admitting some of the silly things you think. So I want to share one with you, and I, I hope you'll be equally as honest. So I watched Sam Mitchell, Doc Rivers, and Jimmy Jackson in the last day share comments and stories about their lives and their experiences as a father, as a person, whatever. Doc Rivers spent 12 years in the NBA. He's coached for, you know, he's, he's made, what, 100 million, 60 million in the league? Sam Mitchell played 12 years in the league, and Jimmy Jackson played 13 years in the league. I, I'm embarrassed to admit that I actually realized today, I thought in some way, this is stupid. I, I, this is my being brave. I'm trying to admit my, my frailty. I hope somebody else will you know, be with me on this. I, I, I actually somehow thought, well, if you have all that success, then maybe you move beyond this. But you don't because you're still black in America. So Jimmy Jackson still has to talk to his kid about what to do if he get pulled over. Sam Mitchell has a story about being pulled over just recently. And half his wife talking the whole time about you gotta stay, you gotta stay calm, you gotta stay in the car. You can't like I, I gotta admit it. Part of me somehow thought you could move. I don't know. Like it's embarrassing, right? But I think that's part of what I'm trying to do, talking to my friends who've, who've, you know, who said, like, what, that's what they've said. Do that. Admit it. Like, that's absurd because the point is that their skin color never changes. It's so exhausting. It never allows them to move out. David Aldridge said it beautifully on top of Doc Rivers' comment the other day. David Aldridge, who writes now, I think, for The Athletic, longtime NBA writer, being a black man in America is exhausting. And I, I guess I'm just kind of me coping, but I also think hopefully there's some value to me admitting this because somebody else out there says, oh, I thought the same thing. I, we're, we're all missing. 
none of us understand what that experience is and what they're feeling. Well, I think LeBron said multiple times here over the last couple of weeks, like, you can't understand unless you're black, you'll never get it. And I think that the natural response, I think for some people would be defensiveness or it would be to say, hey, I'm an ally. Like, I, I do get it. I do hear what you're saying. But the more that they speak about it, the more it becomes clear that, yeah, as, as two white guys, we have not walked in their shoes. We have different lived experiences. Um, there may have been certain moments in our lives where we felt like things were going unjust against us or, you know, I lived abroad and I felt like an outsider for, for that year. But it's not the same as living it every single day, especially when you add the element of uh, police brutality or, or targeting or harassment, all that stuff on top of it. What struck me about Doc Rivers' comments, and I was there, his speech was amazing, obviously. I mean, he connected with so many different people with those words. But when he was done talking, like, he, he looked around the room, and there was only a few of us in that room, and his eyes were almost kind of pleading. Like, he wanted a connection. He wanted someone to tell him, like, man, I hear you. I feel for you. And this is a guy who I've covered for a long time, uh, you know, just in L.A. He's an unbelievably good communicator. I mean, he can spin things with the best of them. He always has a good story or a vignette or a one-liner ready to go. And this was just like an incredibly emotionally honest moment. There's no spin to it. He was just hurting, and he was kind of looking around. He made eye contact, and he was like, do you hear me? Like, you kind of get – I mean, his eyes were kind of pleading along those lines. And, you know, again, I'm sitting there saying, like, look, man – I'm processing every single word that you're saying. I'm just trying to let them know, like, I feel your, I feel your pain. And, and also at the same time, knowing that, uh, you know, I'm never going to totally get it. And it is important to acknowledge that that was one reason why I asked him um, on Tuesday night, what he thought of the boycotts, because he had gone through that with the Donald Sterling thing. He has more experience on this subject, you know, prior today than anyone else. And he actually felt very strongly in favor of the players continuing to play he felt like um, it gave them an opportunity to sort of have a symbolic show of their excellence to kind of, you know, show the viewing public, hey, here's what we do. We can play while also campaigning for social justice. And he thought that, that there was a lot of value to that. But at the very end of his answer, he said, look, if the players say no, I say no. And the decision is no. And he kind of left open that door. And I think there's almost a generational thing going on there as well. I mean, obviously, he's got a son who's in the NBA. And a lot of the decision makers who were involved today or who are going to potentially uh, you know, decide the NBA's fate here are guys who are in their 20s who are certainly younger than me, uh, certainly younger than Doc Rivers. And I think that that's kind of an important aspect of this, too, is like there is a new generation that has ideas and, uh, you know, has beliefs about the best way to approach these things. And I think that they're dying to be heard. I mean, you're hearing guys like Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Fred Van Vliet. I mean, they've got a lot of pain they're trying to get off their chest. And I think it's telling that even Doc Rivers, a guy who's seen it all during his career, who said it all as a coach, was willing to step back and say, all right, guys, like, you know, if you say no, it's no. And I think there's a lot of power to that. So my day started with a text message that said it feels so intense down here. I texted back intense in what sense? This was from someone in the bubble. Heavy. Intense in terms of basketball but heavy as it relates to ongoing social justice problems. Did you know something was different this morning, Ben? Well, um, after the Clippers game, you know, they scored 154 points on Tuesday night. It was the third most points in a playoff game ever. And when you come out after a game like that, and the two leading quotes are Doc Rivers on racial, um, you know, uh, violence in America, 
and Paul George talking about his depression and anxiety and how he had to see a psychiatrist before the game, I think that kind of says it all. I mean, if a team normally scores 154 points, aren't they coming out and hooting and hollering and celebrating and then they're, they're going back uh, to the hotel to celebrate, right? I mean, it was just clear that something was different. And it had been building, um, you know, from LeBron's comments on, um, you know, Monday or Tuesday from, you know, Van Vliet and, and Jalen Brown and some of the talk about a possible boycott between the Raptors and the, the Celtics. It was definitely on the table. But when I went to the game, you know, for the 4 o'clock tip, I got on the 3.30 bus, and I was thinking, you know, hey, this game's going to go forward like normal. The games on Wednesday night had proceeded like normal. The Jazz and uh, Nuggets played a pretty entertaining game. The Clippers put up this huge, you know, show against Dallas. The show had, go on, had gone on. And when I got to the arena, you know, about you know, 10 or 15 minutes before tip-off, I started to realize there was only one team on the court warming up. And it struck me right then, oh, wait a minute. You know, this is strange. This is unusual. And I didn't want to jump the gun on the tweet or the reporting because there was actually a game a week or two ago where Joel Embiid didn't come onto the court until like six minutes before tip-off. So I didn't want it to be a situation where, you know, you're the guy screaming fire in a, in a crowded theater. So I just kind of waited as long as I could. And then eventually it became clear, hey, the Bucks aren't coming out. There's like a couple minutes left on the clock. They're just not here. And so that's when, uh, you know, I tweeted some photos of the, the half-empty court Ultimately, the Magic left the court, so that was an obvious indication that there probably wasn't going to be a game. The referees were huddling. There was a PR official kind of walking uh, with a real purpose to his step uh, towards the back before, um, you know, before that 4 o'clock tip. So at that point, it just kind of you know, came into, all right, well, how close can we get to the Milwaukee Bucks? How, how much are they going to allow us? And ultimately, they set the media up right outside the, uh, the Bucks locker room, down the hallway a little bit. And we just waited there for more than three hours until they came out with their statement. All right. So you're on the floor. No one's there. Who else is in the gym at that point? So you have the typical, um, you know, arena staffers. You have the ball boys. You have the referees. You have uh, a few league officials who are kind of at every game. Now, keep in mind, it was the first game of the day, and that's usually the least attended. So there was, you know, a handful, three or four media members. You know, obviously the TNT crew was there. Um, and there was a couple other writers uh, who were getting ready to write it. But, you know, it's pretty common when you have these, you know, triple headers or quadruple headers for people to show up maybe at halftime or show up, you know, just so they can catch the uh, the post-game comments and then head to the next game. And the next two games in the docket were both really important games. You know, Lakers trying to close out the, close out the Blazers and the, the Rockets and Thunder going head-to-head. So it was pretty quiet in the um, in the building. Now, once you got back towards the locker room, you had a bunch of NBA PR staffers um, waiting around. You had Bucks GM John Horst. You had the, um, the Bucks coaching staff and trainers and security officials were all there. So their whole team party was there, uh, but there, there wasn't too many people. And then over the course of the next hour or two, other media members started to trickle in. So we probably had you know, up to about 15 media members uh, by the end of it sort of waiting for them to come out. But I'll tell you this, Locke, they spent so much time debating in that locker room, talking about what they wanted to say. They, they actually brought in a whiteboard to kind of like write down their, I think their messages and to plan their statement. They spent so much time in that locker room. Some of the players actually had to come out of the locker room to go use a restroom. So they actually had to walk right by us and they weren't making eye contact. They weren't saying anything. They were just going to use the bathroom and going right back into that locker room. So it was a very surreal uh, scene where, you know, guys like George Hill or, or even Giannis, you know, came out very briefly and it was clear that they were engaged in some very, um, you know, serious conversations and, and trying to reach out to uh, politicians in Wisconsin about what possible next steps could take place uh, because, uh, 
you know, they didn't even want to, uh, you know, say hi to media members who they obviously know very well and see on a daily basis. What was your feeling when you suddenly realized what was going on? Did you immediately realize the magnitude? Well, for sure, because I go back to this idea of a boycott or a strike potentially being a third rail issue for sports, right? Where it's like the kind of thing that you grew up, you know, reading about like how much damage the, the baseball strike did to the sport. And, and uh, you know, obviously that's over the course of like, you know, extended time period, you know, months and months, not just one game. But still, it's just one of those things that you never think that, uh, you know, would take place. There's so much money at stake. They've come all the way down here to, uh, you know, play in the bubble. So I was, you know, pretty skeptical even heading into the game that they would, someone, a team would actually do it. But once they didn't take the court, I mean, to me, I just kind of snapped and it was like, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, this kind of eerie calm, you know, comes over. You get into this like reporter mode and it's like, all right, well, you know, we're dealing with something new. There's a certain thrill to it because it is unprecedented. It's obviously historic, and you realize this is going to be a story that goes far and wide. I mean, my phone is being bombarded with people, you know, around the globe just asking what's happening, you know, can you talk about it, you know, asking for interview requests and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, ultimately you just try to zone out all that noise and, and focus and wait to find the, the developments. Um, you know, the Bucks issued a statement from their owners basically backing the players so that let us know that there was at least some level of communication between the players and the ownership group about what their intentions were. This wasn't a hostile action, you know, towards the owners themselves. Um, and then we also, you know, wound up getting uh, a little briefing from the general manager, John Horst, who said, hey, look, we're going to be able to, you know, talk to you at some point here, but uh, the players might not take questions. They might not speak to you directly. And, uh, you know, we're going to be a while was sort of his message to the media. And you know, ultimately, the players did come out and give that, uh, you know, read their statement. George Hill did and, and Sterling Brown did. They did not take questions and they departed pretty quickly after they read that statement. So, um, you know, it was very surreal the whole time. You're kind of pinching yourself. And, you know, we could kind of tell that the, the, the hallway scene was being, uh, you know, transmitted live on uh, NBA TV and I think TNT as well. So, uh, you know, the whole thing was just, uh, you know, uh, an unforgettable just once in a lifetime type moment. Uh, ben Golliver with us, Washington Post. He was in the bubble. We'll get more thoughts from him on that and and where and some more details on tonight and what we think is about to happen. Today's show is brought to you by Built Bar. It's the best tasting protein bar ever with remarkable macros. They have just relaunched the new Built Bar. It is even better than before. Six new flavors: cal- caramel brownie, cookies and cream, cherry barcia. Lemon, almond, cheesecake, carrot cake, and all, apple almond crisp to go along with all their regulars. The mint brownie, the salted caramel, the double chocolate. I mentioned the ones without nuts because that's all I can have. The macros are amazing. Like that coconut almond one, 18 grams, 180 calories, 5 grams of sugar, and 5 grams of carbs. That is crazy different than the most popular bars out there that have huge calorie numbers, huge sugar numbers, and huge carb numbers. Perfect for the keto diet if that's something you're interested in. Right now, Built Bars reset their promo code for this launch, and so therefore you can use the promo code Locked On again, even if you've already used it, and you'll get $10 off your next order and the order after that if you do it correctly. Use the promo code Locked On $10 off at Built Bar while supplies last. Uh, so... That's again, builtbar.com, promo code locked on. Go to builtbar.com, promo code locked on. When did you know Oklahoma City and Houston was canceled? When did you know Lakers and Portland was canceled? You know, after it got to be about 4.30 and the Bucks had not emerged from the locker room and there hadn't been necessarily like an official declaration 
that this is a, whether it's a forfeit or a postponement or a cancellation, but once it just kind of set in that, look, this game's not going to take place, uh, my wheel started turning and I was like, look, I mean, there's not going to be any situation where LeBron or Chris Paul as head of the players union is going to wind up and take the court when these other guys, you know, have already decided not to play. Right. It, it felt like in a way when the Bucks decided not to take the court, they almost made that decision on behalf of all six teams that were scheduled to, uh, to play that day. And to be clear, Orlando did take the court prior to all of this. Um, they were expecting to play. They waited in their locker room for a little bit um, after they uh, were kind of brought back off the court. And then they just left the arena and didn't really address any, you know, the, the media in any meaningful way um, on their way out. So uh, to me, it was, it was kind of a bang, bang deal. It was like, once this game was off, we knew it was going to be this momentous story, you know, across all of sports. And there wasn't going to be any kind of opportunity for, another game to go on like normal. All right. So tonight they had meetings. The Lakers and Clippers reportedly said, we don't want to keep playing tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern time. We're recording this. It's now today. So we're, we've crossed midnight at 11 a.m. Eastern time. The board of governors is holding a call with union representation in that call simultaneously the players are meeting the feeling in numerous tweets and reports was that it was very heated and emotional tonight and that there was really almost too much emotion in the room and so a quest to get everyone back together at 11 tomorrow what do you and what does this tell you let's go with the facts first or kind of working off the facts and then you can give me a little supposition of what you think will happen so 11 a.m eastern Board of Governors call and the Players Union involved in that. Players all meeting at 11 a.m. also in Orlando. Well, I'd say, first of all, it tells us that there was no finalized formal decision about what to do tonight, right? Because otherwise you wouldn't need to have dual meetings tomorrow. I think it also says that, look, there's going to need to be probably some extended conversations between the various parties about trying to put this thing back together if indeed they do want to put it back together I think to me, probably the move here is to kind of hit the pause button, right? Like if you're um, the NBA, you've invested more than $100 million into the bubble. Um, If you're the players, you've got hundreds of millions of dollars in salary at stake here. And on top of that, you also have the possibility of a lockout for next season at stake. Um, You know, at at the very least, there's a labor negotiation that needs to be taking place to determine the terms um, for the, uh, the 2020 and 2021 season. So um, that's a lot hanging over any decision that's going to be made here. And I think if you're Adam Silver, if you're Michelle Roberts, the last thing you want to do is rush into a decision. So my guess here is that they're going to try to hit the pause button. I would be shocked if any games are played tomorrow. I actually wouldn't be surprised if we go a few days without either a decision or um, games at all. You know, they do have flexibility with the schedule. You know, if they need to push these things back, they certainly can do that. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they're the ones who set the schedule. They can obviously, you know, rejigger it as needed. So to me, I, I think we're going to be in a little bit of a waiting game. And I think ultimately it's going to be a conversation and negotiation, whatever you want to call it. I think that's what we're headed for. There was, if we're really truthful about this, the financial implications to the league, the feeling of how mad the owners would be in the upcoming negotiations over a lockout if the players didn't enter the bubble was an important reason why this took place. The, the long-term financial ramifications were really significant. Do you think that still holds power today? 
Well, look, I mean, eventually cooler heads are going to have to prevail, right? I mean, it's never going to be more tense in this and more emotional than it is in this particular moment because the entire bubble just got shook upside down. But absolutely, I think that, you know, you're still looking at 40% of revenues for next year not being there. Michelle Roberts, you know, told me earlier this week she was optimistic about the negotiations for next year. But look, they don't even know when they want to start. They don't know what the financial split would look like. They haven't really, um, you know, begun deep negotiations on that kind of stuff. And they've already talked about pushing things back, like the date of the draft, um, or even potentially pushing back the start of free agency, right? So there's a lot of um, unanswered questions that need to be negotiated by those two sides before you even talk about, um, you know, trying to salvage this bubble season. So I think the stakes are as big and as, as widespread as ever. You know, I think ultimately, like, the real money was, was still yet to be made in terms of the television ratings from uh, the conference finals and the finals. And, and yes, they, they made good on the regular season contracts for the local television partners. So they checked that off the list, but there was still a lot of more work to be done to kind of dig out of the, uh, the billion dollar hole the NBA found itself in. So there's lots of motivated parties here is, is the short answer to you know try to find a way to see this thing through. I'm just trying to address, uh, address situations. I'm not trying to be cynical or imply there's any lack of sincerity in anything going on. If I was organizing the players and wanted to get something done with our with the ownership and accomplish something, I don't know what, and the Milwaukee Bucks had just boycotted a game, I would want the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Clippers to announce that they didn't want to continue the season. That's my next, right? Like, just for, if I was negotiating... This may all be not negotiated. It may just be a coincidence. What is it you think if that has some truth to it? The players want from the ownership. You know, look, I don't. I don't want to speculate on. You know, is this some sort of a leverage play or a power play? I mean, I. I don't think that's you know appropriate for me to say. I would you know just say that look, they've asked for the foundation, which they were able to get the three hundred million dollar foundation towards the black communities. They've asked for greater hiring. Um, you know, processes within organizations, the GM ranks and those kinds of things. Those have been the kind of topics that the um, the union officials have broached, um, you know, with the NBA owners. And we'll see what else they, they, they come up with. But, um, you know, ultimately, you know, the owners are going to say, like, I imagine they're saying, like, we're with you. We're, we're expressing our support to you with these public statements. Um, you know, give us things that we can actually directly address and, and we'll we'll talk to you about that. Um, you know, if the frustration is with, you know, law enforcement agencies and uh, local governments and things like that, I mean, that's not something that a, a private company like an NBA team would be able to, uh, you know, directly address. And I think that that could be part of the disconnect, the, the kinds of solutions, you know, the the relief of the fear factor, um, you know, the idea that, you know, this isn't a hopeless uh, racial climate. You know, those kinds of things like, you know, the, the NBA owners are not going to be able to make those level of promises to the players. And I think. Um, you know, that, that might crystallize here as, as tensions, uh, you know, maybe uh, reduce a little bit as time passes over the next day or two. I think the person who texted you was right on. Things were very volatile over the last couple of days, and they were building, and they built to a big uh, moment um, on Wednesday, a, a newsworthy historic moment. And I, I do think that, uh, you know, ultimately, like, there's that, that sensation cannot last forever. There are going to be people who kind of, you know, process that, move forward and do try to come up with a list of things that they want. Um, I'm not sure if you have suggestions on what you think the players might want here. Um, but, 
you know, I think uh, more than anything, they, they want stuff from society as opposed to just the NBA owners. A hundred percent. That's a little bit why I asked the question. The union is involved in the, the, the 11 a.m. call with the ownership. Um, and so that's, you know, that tells me that there's something there or it's just understanding where the ownership is. I, I don't know. I, I just, you know, I don't know if there is something that they want. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I want to go to another topic that I think is being overshadowed before we wrap this up because I, and I, again, I'm trying to just ask the questions I think need to be asked and I apologize if anyone takes it in the wrong ilk. The Paul George story is important. Paul, we, I, we all talked about it. Ben, you and I did an entire show on the mental health of the players in the bubble. Then we got there, we started playing, everybody like, okay, let's move on. Paul George just revealed like, I actually was having problems. Joe Ingles talked about it a little bit early on in the process. Then you add on whatever the emotion is that I don't have any way of understanding of a black American man seeing yet another case of police violence against a black American man. What is your feeling on the mental health or feeling of how much the bubble is closing in on guys right now well look we've seen some really joyous and impressive performances on the court so you know i don't want to say oh everybody's just over it they're sick of it because i think it would be very difficult for these guys to perform at such a high level as they have if they weren't in a good space i mean you look at luca you look at LeBron. I mean, the list goes on. Jason Tatum. There's a lot of guys playing really good basketball oh, I'll here. I'll mention Jamal Murray while you're at it. I mean, I've you know, and Donovan Mitchell. I've kind of seen that one up close. Oh yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, how about Jamal Murray too? I mean, there's another one. Uh, so yeah, there's been a bunch of guys, uh, you know, playing playing well. And I think that the quality of play would suffer if that was completely widespread. But one question that we raised you know, going all the way back to June was, did they make this thing too long? Did they bite off more than they can chew? And I think part of the problem for some of these teams, you know, and especially the teams that we've been discussing, the Lakers, Clippers, Raptors, Celtics, and Bucks, I mean, they're all looking at the situation and thinking, hey, we might still be in the bubble until mid-October. And there's a few teams who are going to be in that meeting tonight who are thinking like, hey, guys, if we just play like one or two more games, it's time for us to go home. Like our seasons are over. So, those teams in those various situations are going to approach these uh, questions totally differently, right? Um, you know, the prospect of the bubble being, you know, oppressive and restrictive is really going to weigh on guys who are thinking like, I still might not be able to see my loved ones for another five or six weeks or, or seven weeks. And I think that they're going to approach this one differently. So um, I guess uh, long story short, it's definitely been wearing on people. And how could it not? Um, I think even non-players have been feeling it. You know, there's a few staffers who are actually going to be swapping out halfway through this process. And I, I've heard from a couple of them, they're really looking forward to the idea they can go on vacation or they can just get back home and, and kind of get out of the cycle of, of game after game after game. And I get it. It, it has been exhausting. It's, it, to me, has been very rewarding, but I can understand how it could wear on people. And, you know, Paul George was very direct and candid about it. You don't have to read between the lines. He told everybody he was feeling anxiety and depression Certainly, he's not the only person experiencing that. Um, but I think uh, it matters a little bit here on, on what your team status is. And, and for the guys who are you know, planning to be here until October, I mean, that would be a major factor. It would certainly weigh on their minds um, you know, during this particular time period as they're trying to decide, hey, do we play or not play? 
Final thing for Ben Golliver, Washington Post. You can read him at thewashingtonpost.com. Follow him on Twitter at Ben Golliver. Get his weekly newsletter. His book will be coming out as well. Bubble Ball. Uh, without you giving up your book. Um, Bubble Ball. When you have to find the moment that defines today. And you have to write that picture. What are you writing? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think probably just the, the team when they, they came out together to read that statement is probably the one that will stick with me because we were still, they told us they, they were going to come out momentarily to talk and we waited for 35 minutes. That was a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty heart stopping 35 minutes. You didn't really know what they were going to say. You weren't sure what their message was. We didn't know who was going to speak. Um, we just wanted to hear their side of the story here because, you know, it was very clear that it had already become a massive international story by that point. So that was probably one. The other would be, you know, after settling in at my desk, um, you know, for that game, you know, got my little iced tea lined up, got my, uh, you know, sparkling water lined up, just like any other normal day, ready to watch, uh, you know, Giannis go against the Orlando Magic and probably have 35 and 10 and 8 and, you know, get ready to go on to the next round. Just looking up and, and having that, you know, dawn of the realization of, wait a minute, you know, there's only one team out here. Uh, wh- where's the other team? And, watching the clock tick down second by second, they're still not coming out. They're still not coming out. Um, and having the entire thing just sort of dawn on you that, Hey, wait a minute. Um, this is going to be unlike any other game you've ever been to. I'd say those are the two standout moments. Ben Golliver again, read him on the Washington post. His Twitter is at Ben Golliver. Great work. Uh, you know, when we, we talked a lot before this, uh, and we shared with each other, I said, I would have wanted to go in the bubble. Um, I think I've also shared with some people that, like, in this week, I've thought to myself, like, oh, my gosh, they've been there a long time. Um, because it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, it has now exceeded anything we thought it would be when we thought it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. It's kind of crazy. On that note, make sure you go read Ben. Let's hear from Doc Rivers again from last night. As far, as far as the other situation, um, it's just so sad. Uh, you know, it, what stands out to me is um, just just watching the Republican convention, uh, convention and this they're spewing this fear, right? Like all you hear is Donald Trump and all of them talking about the fear. We're the ones getting killed. We're the ones getting shot. Uh, we're the ones that we're denied to live in certain communities. Um, we've been hung, we've been shot, and all you do is keep hearing a fear. It's it's amazing why we keep loving this country, and this country does not love us back. And it's just, it's really so sad. Like, I should just be a coach. And it's so often reminded of my color. You know, it's just really sad. We got to do better. Uh, But we got to demand better. Like, we got, you know, it's it's funny. We protest and they send riot guards, right? Uh, They send people in riot outfits 
they go up to Michigan with guns and they're spitting on cops and nothing happens. The training has to change in the police force. The unions have to be taken down in the police force. My dad was a cop. I believe in good cops. We're not trying to defund the police and take all their money away. We're trying to get them to protect us, just like they protect everybody else. Uh, I didn't want to talk about it before the game because it's so hard like to just keep watching it. That video, if, if you watch that video, you don't need to be black to be outraged. You, don't, you need to be American and outraged. And how dare the Republicans talk about fear? We're the ones that need to be scared. We're the ones having to talk every, to every black child. What white father has to give his son a talk about being careful if you get pulled over? It's, it's just ridiculous. And it just keeps getting, it keeps going. Uh, there's no charges. Breonna Taylor, no charges, nothing. All we're asking is you live up to the Constitution. That's all we're asking for everybody, for everyone. Thank you. You want to get back to basketball? Coach, can I have a follow-up on that? Yeah. Just real quick. I mean, uh, there's been players from the Raptors and the Celtics sort of weighing. Do you play, not play? You said how I think tricky we it is play. to be a you coach. Know, one thing I'd say, I think you always play. You know why? Uh, we can fight for justice, uh, but we still should do our jobs. I really believe that. Uh, because doing our jobs, people are seeing excellence from, from Americans, black Americans and white Americans. So I, I, don't, I, I, I would still do my job. That's just my opinion. But if my players told me no, it'd be no. I can tell you that. Um, it's, when you watch that video, it's sickening. It's sickening. You know, the, his kids were in the car. How do they ever get that out of their mind? How are those kids ever normal? And you've been in the spot deciding boycott, not boycott. What would yeah. your message be to players who are in this situation weighing these kinds of questions yeah, really for the first time? My message is go after your dreams. You don't allow anything to take you away from your dreams. Uh, doing the Donald Sterling thing, you know, we, uh, Matt Barnes and Chris Paul, DJ and Blake and all those guys, JJ Reddick, they all pulled together. And at the end of the day, the one thing we decided when we were little kids, and we were in the backyard by ourselves and we had these dreams about winning the championship. Donald Sterling was not in our dreams and neither were these cops. And so they're not gonna take anybody, they're not taking our dreams away, all right? And so that would be my message.